0: July 7th, 1937. A group of Chinese soldiers in northeastern China are playing cards in their barracks as a long night drags on, and their shift as night watchmen would be up soon. It was a warm night, and quiet. Things had stayed relatively quiet recently, though there had been rumors of Japanese armies massing on their northern border. But tonight, it was just these soldiers... ...in their game of cards. Suddenly, around 4 o'clock in the morning... ...another noticeably shaken watchman bursts into the room... ...crying for everyone to suit up and rush to the banks of a nearby river. Apparently, someone across the river had provoked Chinese troops... ...who had fired on them. Whoever was on the other side had fired back and then rushed away... ...calling for help. Annoyed by the interruption, but apt to follow orders... The soldiers quickly drop their game of cards and get in their uniforms, grabbing their old rifles, hoping that it's just a fluke. After some time walking, they begin hearing sounds of gunfire up ahead. And when they reach the banks of the river, they find that instead of a fluke, there was an intense firefight taking place, and instead of Chinese rebels on the other side of the river as they'd hoped, they seemed to be a well-trained and well-coordinated enemy firing upon their men someone shot a flare to illuminate the battlefield and a collective gasp went up from the chinese defenders the soldiers on the other side of the river were not chinese rebels they were wearing uniforms with japanese insignias the flare illuminated a nearby hillside across the river where they saw a column of troops advancing toward the river to reinforce the attackers this wasn't meant to be a skirmish they were looking at an entire japanese army built for a single purpose. Invasion. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. The podcast is Tanner Talks about stuff that happened. I am Tanner and I will be talking about stuff that happened. If you're new to the podcast, welcome to the party. If you've been here a while, thanks for coming back for more. This is part eight of our Conflict of Nations series. I can't believe we are eight parts into this series. And today, we are talking about the conflict between China and Japan in the Far East. Things are definitely heating up here. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, I do recommend going, and going back and at least listening to a few of the parts before we got here so that you understand what we're trying to accomplish here and so you understand the sequence of events that eventually led up to what is going on in this episode, because there are a lot of moving parts. Before we begin, remember: if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. I know you can uh, do this on Spotify now as well. I think that's a recent thing. But uh, give me, drop me a five star review. Let me know that you enjoy what you're hearing. It really means a lot to me, and it helps us get more people involved with the conversations about history. It's more important now than I think at any point ever to understand your history. Let's get more people involved. Yeah, tell your friends, tell your family. If you don't like the podcast, tell your enemies. Send it my way. And the podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to donate financially, there's a link to do that in the podcast description. Hope to see you there. Alright, without further ado, let's get this party started. In the last episode, we covered the Russian Civil War, the Paris Peace Conference, the rise of fascism in Europe. But as many of us know, and those who don't know will learn... There's some debate over if World War II started in 1939 when Nazi Germany invaded Poland, or if the starting date was actually two years earlier, when the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out. Some historians argue that if that it began even before that. So, what was going on in the East while ultranationalism gripped Europe? To fully understand this, we've gotta take a quick field trip back to 1868 on the island of japan where the japanese population is on the brink of civil war for centuries japan had maintained a strict policy of isolationism keeping japanese politics and japanese culture inside japan and keeping any other politics and cultures out trade with anywhere was heavily restricted with the only exceptions being the chinese through an isolated port korea through an isolated port and the Dutch through an isolated port. In the mid-1800s, however, Western powers began a concentrated effort to open up Japanese ports to provide their caravans a more protected trade route to the Far East, first with diplomacy, and then with military force when diplomacy failed. Over the course of a decade between 1854 and 1864, right after the Crimean War ended, Japan began to modernize out of necessity to compete with the new aggressors, specifically because these Western powers had utilized gunboat diplomacy as their preferred form of coercion. Check out part two of this series for a definition on gunboat diplomacy. That's where we talk about the Crimean War. Because Japan did not have the military means to counter such a formidable opponents, so Japanese Emperor Komei released a proclamation to the people ordering them not to trade with any Westerners, and to actively try to expel them from Japan, known as the Order to Expel Barbarians. This led to attacks on foreign trading vessels and merchants, leading to at least one death, and more foreign aggression. The Japanese people, afraid that their traditional way of life was under imminent threat, began doubting the ability of the Japanese authorities to protect them from these foreigners, And many factions began forming against the Japanese government, which at the time was a patchwork of territories governed by warlords known as shoguns, making up what was then known as the shogunate. (laughs) Let's explore what a shogunate was. The term shogun first appeared around 700 or 800 AD in reference to Japanese generals who won significant victories over rival Japanese tribes specifically those in northern Japan. Several hundred years later, as Japan became more interested in a centralized government, Japanese shoguns began establishing their own shogunates, which were small feudal kingdoms where a single shogun reigned over his people, who worked his land and industry in exchange for food and protection. Different shogunates took power in Japan over the years, constantly warring and vying for power, which kept Japan from unifying for centuries. The most famous of these being the Tokugawa shogunate, which was the last ruling shogunate of Japan toppled in 1867. In the 1860s, Japan was in a state of upheaval, as the Tokugawa shogunate was rapidly destabilizing. For centuries before this, the Tokugawa shogunate had controlled the Japanese emperor completely, along with most centralized authorities and most religious institutions. In the 1860s, however, the Japanese Emperor Komei began acting independently of the shogunate, signing orders without their approval that countered the foreign incursions into Japan. The shogunate had experienced a number of humiliating losses to Western powers, and the Japanese people were losing faith in them, looking more to the emperor for direction rather than to their local leaders, leading to domestic tensions rising in Japan, leading to the outbreak of a civil war between shogunate forces and those opposed to the shogunate. This war lasted a year and was a blowout against the forces of the shogunate. Power was restored to the imperial court, and the reign of the shogun came to an end, followed shortly thereafter by the end of the Dominion of the Samurai as the leading social class, replaced by an army of Japanese conscripts. Shortly thereafter, the Meiji Restoration went into full swing, modernizing Japan and opening it to foreigners, adopting ideas of Western government and trade, For more on the Meiji Restoration, check out my Nintendo episode. All of this led to the first major confrontation between Japan and China in the 1890s. Both were starting to flex their expansionary muscles, China in Korea and Japan in Taiwan. In Korea, the native Koreans were becoming displeased with the Chinese influence over their territory, and they revolted. Years earlier, China and Japan had come to an agreement that in the event of colonial intervention... They would let the other know before they took action. However, China sent troops to intervene in the Korean revolt without letting the Japanese know. Korean peasants asked Japan for help, and the annoyed Japan sent troops to help overthrow the Korean puppet government. So the Chinese were helping the Korean government, the Japanese were trying to overthrow the Korean government, And eventually, due to the limitless reserves of the Chinese military, the uprising was quashed. But, when orders were requested by the Japanese soldiers, they were ordered to actually remain in Korea. Their mission had changed, because more troops were on the way. Challenged by China's influence over what was quickly becoming a healthy Japanese imperial ambition... Japan went to war with China over disputed claims in Korea and Taiwan. Both China and Japan claimed either. Battles erupted across the Korean peninsula and on the island of Taiwan as the Japanese military crushed Chinese armies in clash after clash. The Japanese modernized war machine was steamrolling the ill-equipped and ill-trained Qing dynastic armed forces despite having less than half their numbers deployed less than a year it was over with china resolutely defeated korea and taiwan both became independent nations for a time not even a year later japan fired up its imperial engines annexing taiwan and declaring the korean peninsula its protectorate which essentially made it part of japan in 1910 japan formally annexed korea and it wasn't even close to being done during World War I, Japan entered the war on the side of the Allies, but most of you didn't know that. In the early stages of the war, Japan seized the few German holdings in the Pacific, such as the islands of Yap and Palau, and in the Far East, principally in China. Though the Japanese held on to their island captures after the war ended, they did return mainland Chinese territory to China, though it was at a cost. Japan demanded control over many aspects of Chinese industry and trade in order for China to get their land back. And the Chinese, who had recently gone through a revolution and were in no shape to fight the Japanese off, agreed to the demands, leading to nationwide anti-Japanese protests all across China. As China attempted to modernize and rebuild its society from the recent revolution over the next ten years, the course of action the country should take became divided amongst the people. On one side lay the Chinese Nationalist Republicans, who favored Western democratic ideals and wanted a free-market society built on a Chinese Nationalist identity. On the other side lay the Chinese Communist Party, who favored the abolition of the free market and the institution of a communist society. Tensions grew between these two groups in the ten years after the end of World War I, and in 1927, both sides militarized in an attempt to eliminate the other, resulting in the Chinese Civil War. Initially, and quickly, the Nationalists took control of the government and began launching attacks northward to communist strongholds, often ending in bloody urban confrontations that put many civilians in harm's way. Eventually, the Nationalist army found its way to a city called Jinan, near the borders of Manchuria, the northeastern arm of modern China. While this was happening in China, Japan was consolidating control over the Korean Peninsula and expanding its borders deeper into mainland Asia, taking control of much of Manchuria. So, the Chinese are fighting in Manchuria, and the Japanese are incurring into Manchuria. So what does this eventually lead to? Well, when the Chinese Nationalist Army marched too deep into northeastern China in 1928, they accidentally stumbled upon territory in the Japanese sphere of influence, which they had been ordered to avoid. Rumors of atrocities committed by both sides in the Civil War had reached the ears of the Japanese government, and they sent 4,000 troops to the territory as the Chinese forces drew near, with a mission to protect all Japanese civilians living in the area. In the city of Jinan, where the communists and the nationalists were fighting already, there were segments inhabited primarily by Japanese citizens, though most of the city was ethnically and nationally Chinese. As the nationalists closed in, the Japanese troops were stationed in these areas of Japanese control and ordered not to attack unless fired upon. So as the nationalist army entered the city, there was no fighting between the Japanese and Chinese forces, as both honored the objectives of the other though Nationalist forces harbored some resentment for Japanese forces occupying Chinese territory, even though it wasn't a totally formal occupation. A month after the Nationalists showed up, a fight broke out between groups of Chinese and Japanese soldiers, resulting in one Chinese soldier being shot. No one knows for sure who started the fight, but Chinese stories vary, while Japanese stories hold to a single version of events which leads historians to favor the Japanese retelling of the story, which claims that the Chinese instigated the brawl. After the shooting, Chinese soldiers began attacking Japanese civilians, which demuzzled the Japanese soldiers ordered to protect those civilians. A citywide battle broke out between the Chinese nationalists and the Japanese troops. The lightly trained and poorly equipped nationalist army was no match for the cold and calculated precisionary tactics of the Japanese and the week-long battle ended with the retreat of the nationalist forces and the announcement from Japan that they intended to formally occupy the city, demanding an apology from the Chinese government and fiercely oppressing Chinese citizens in Jinan. Though the Chinese nationalist government did apologize for the incident and command the removal of all nationalist troops from the territory, Japanese opinion of Chinese soldiers was permanently damaged from the incident, and a deeply rooted distrust began to grow between the two forces. In March of 1929, a final agreement was reached between Japanese and Chinese authorities, and Japanese troops were removed from Jinan, returning the territory within Japanese control inside Manchuria, north of the Chinese-controlled territories. And if this were an isolated incident, it's very likely that aggression would have ceased. Unfortunately, it was not an isolated incident. In fact, it was one of three central incidents that precipitated further Japanese military action in China. This first incident is called the Jinan Incident. The next incident occurred less than a year after the situation in Jinan, and it was something like this. The Japanese were working with a Chinese warlord in Manchuria who controlled much of the territory and many of the railways in Manchuria. This warlord was named Zhang Cholin, and he needed help protecting these railways to serve his own interests. In a bit of serendipity, the Japanese were interested in exploiting the abundance of natural resources found in the same region, and offered to assist Zhang Zolin in protecting it against roving bandits and other warlords in exchange for using it to transport raw materials back to their ports in Korea to ship them back to Japan. This went well for a while as both sides benefited greatly from the partnership. But the downside was that the two benefactors had a different vision for the future of the partnership. The Japanese envisioned a future joint occupation of Manchuria as Zhang continued his territorial expansion into China. Zhang, on the other hand, wanted full control of Manchuria and saw the partnership as a means to an end. Initially, only Japan had the rights to invest in land governed by Zhang, but when an economic crisis befell Japan in 1923 and the communists and nationalists began encroaching on his land in 1926, Zhang reached out to the United States and Britain, inviting them to invest in Manchuria, which would provide him the funds needed to fight off his enemies. Japan saw this as a direct threat to their dominance over Manchuria. At this point, the Soviets were installing a puppet government in Mongolia and sending resources and advisors to help the communists, and the nationalists wanted Manchuria as a base of operations for further pushes into central China. Manchuria was Japan's greatest asset. Lots of natural resources lots of manpower, and a buffer between China, the Soviet Union, and now, Mongolia. And they knew that both the nationalists and the communists were unfriendly in China. Were one of them to take Manchuria, it would permanently damage Japan's rapidly growing industry and put them at risk of invasion. In order to maintain control, the Japanese government began grooming a pro-Japanese successor to Zhang, who would take his place were a strange freak accident to befall him. And wouldn't you know it, a strange freak accident did befall him. On June 4, 1928, an explosion sent a train carrying Zhang and his military advisors off the rails, killing several political figures and officials, including Zhang. But when they pointed fingers at the Japanese, the Japanese government actually denied any involvement, condemning the incident along with the international community. It's important to know here that Japan was actually being relatively honest. While the attack was perpetrated by Japanese militarists, it did not come with the approval of Tokyo, even though Tokyo was pretty much planning to do the exact same thing. The Japanese were actually hoping that a successful assassination attempt would be undertaken when the Japanese military was mobilized enough to take control of Manchuria in the ensuing power vacuum, but the military was not mobilized nor ready to take control of such a large territory. Instead, they hoped the official they had groomed to ascend as Zhang's spot, Yang Yuting, would be chosen to take his place. Instead, Zhang's son rose to take his place who carried out the reconciliation with the nationalists in China and weakened Japanese political power in China. It was a disaster for the Japanese. Three years of relative quiet passed while tensions grew between the Chinese and the Japanese who were semi-occupying Manchuria. The Chinese Civil War continued on the home front, with the nationalists consolidating power across the country, sending the communists on the run to the mountainous northern territories and virtually annihilating their forces. For the Nationalists, this was a fortunate turn of events, and they began their attempts to formally unify the country. The victory of the Nationalists over the Communists and the coming inevitable unification of China alarmed the Japanese Empire, which had gained control over much of Manchuria by exploiting the weakened Chinese government and partnering with warlords who had taken it upon themselves to govern over certain regions of the nation in its turmoil. If and when China unified, it would be a true force to be reckoned with, with a military more than capable of forcing the Japanese off the mainland entirely by sheer strength of numbers. Manchuria had made Japan profoundly wealthy, and the raw materials exported from the region had supported the continued growth of their military. As their imperial ideas grew, they realized they needed a way to keep China destabilized. On September 18th, 1931, in a repeat of what had taken place three years earlier, a small explosion went off on a vital railway line that the Japanese used to transport materials and personnel, with the explosion happening only a few football fields away from a Chinese garrison. Though there was no major damage done to the railway line, and the line continued to be completely operable, the Japanese government blamed the Chinese military for attempting to sabotage their operations in the region, And in response, within 24 hours, Japanese artillery was firing on Chinese positions, and the Japanese troops overran that same Chinese garrison. By nightfall of September 19th, the city of Mukden, which the railway passed through, was fully under the occupation of the Japanese. This would come to be called the Mukden Incident. It would only be revealed after the war ended that Japanese soldiers had planted the explosives and it was all a false flag attack to give the Japanese an excuse to invade China and keep the nation destabilized. And so the military action by the Japanese in Manchuria began. Following the railroad, the Japanese military occupied city after city as untrained and inexperienced Chinese soldiers offered feeble resistance and eventually were ordered to lay their arms down and flee. By mid October, most Manchurian territories near the Korean border were fully under Japanese military jurisdiction. With this news, the Japanese government sent three more fully armored divisions to Manchuria to aid in the invasion. Many Chinese historians refer to this as the beginning of the great resistance against Japanese aggression, the beginning of a conflict that would eventually span 14 years and claim countless lives. In 2017, the Chinese government changed the name of the war from the 8 years resistance, referring to the outbreak of hostilities in 1937, to the 14 years resistance, placing the beginning of the war at the invasion of Manchuria in 1931. It would, indeed, be a long 14 years for the Chinese. Though several valorous acts of defense were undertaken by some heroic Chinese generals, the Chinese military, weakened by civil war and unrest, was chaff before the scythe as the Japanese advanced. By February of 1931, the Chinese had formally surrendered all of Manchuria, and the Japanese quickly set up shop with a provisional government in the territory, renaming it Manchukuo and placing it firmly under the Japanese thumb. Though some volunteer groups banded together to resist the Japanese annexation, this was the end of formal Chinese resistance to Japanese incursions into Manchuria in this initial invasion. China turned its attention back to its internal conflicts, attempting to unify the nation once more. A number of warlords had sprung up in different territories, and while the Nationalist Army was still dealing with smaller communist insurgencies, It also needed to convince these warlords to unite in case Japan got any more funny ideas about expansion. This culminated in the Central Plains War, a conflict between the nationalist government and a coalition of these warlords, ultimately ending in the defeat of the warlords in the annexation of their territories by the nationalist government, who then focused on the eradication of the communist factions that they just could not seem to snuff out. For another five years, the nationalists would launch campaign after campaign into the Chinese heartland, trying to rid the countryside of the communist threat. But as many times as they advanced, they so retreated, without being able to gain any foothold due to the guerrilla tactics of the communists and the mountainous landscapes in which they were waging war. At one point, the communists had been so battered by the war that Mao Zedong, one of the leaders of the communist armies, elected to leave the stronghold of southeast China and move further into the mountains in a series of brutal exoduses that came to be known as the Long March, which nearly destroyed the communist forces. Communist armies marched nearly 12,500 kilometers inland in less than a year, and upon their arrival at the designated destination, Mao's forces, which had numbered between 90,000 and 100,000 at the beginning of the march, had been reduced to less than 10,000. But still, they fought on, rallying impoverished Chinese citizens in the countryside to join their cause as they waited for the nationalists to arrive. But the nationalists would never arrive. By the time the communists had holed up in central China, the nationalist government had become aware of a Japanese military build-up taking place in Manchuria, and removing their troops away from the communists toward Manchuria in preparation for another war with Imperial Japan. Turns out, in the five years since Japan had annexed Manchuria, they'd become enamored with just how easy it was to annex Manchuria, and essentially double their imperial holdings in a few years. This lit an imperialist flame underneath the Japanese nationalists, and they decided to think big, really big, bigger than Napoleon, bigger than Alexander the Great, bigger than any imperialist had ever considered to go, even bigger than the British Empire itself. And they planned to start with the near annexation of all of China. But they knew it wasn't going to be easy. In early July of 1937, Japanese forces massing on the border spilled into Chinese territory and skirmishes broke out between Japanese and Chinese troops. In a few days, these skirmishes had swelled into a full-scale battle, where nearly 200,000 Japanese troops flooded a number of Chinese cities on the border, defended by only 75,000 Chinese soldiers. In a matter of weeks, the Chinese had been overwhelmed, and the Japanese advance continued with relentless force, reaching the port city of Shanghai in a matter of days. Though Chinese and Japanese diplomats attempted feebly to reach a peace agreement, both nations were sending soldiers into the city, where a ferocious and bloody urban battle would take place over the next three months, resulting in nearly 300,000 deaths. The Chinese would eventually abandon the city to the Japanese, who had reduced it, essentially, to rubble. On paper, the battle was devastating for the Chinese, Shanghai had been a significant manufacturing center for their wartime materials, and 90% of their factories had either been bombed out, captured by the Japanese, or decommissioned rather than fall to the Japanese, and the materials from only 10% of their factories had been relocated to different cities to be rebuilt. At the onset of the fight, the Chinese had elected to send many of their most elite soldiers and armor units into the battle to repel the Japanese, and most or all of those units had been killed or captured in the fighting, Shanghai itself was nearly entirely destroyed, and many wondered if China was already lost. Interestingly, this was not the case. Though logistically it was a disaster for the Chinese, the Battle of Shanghai marked a turning point in China's response to Japanese expansion. It showed that the Chinese would no longer sit idly by and watch the Japanese annex their territory year after year, and they would actively resist this expansion from this point forward. This was no longer just an invasion. This was a war, and the Japanese were eager to punish the Chinese for their audacious resistance. Shortly following the fall of Shanghai, the Japanese Imperial Army marched on a city called Nanking the obvious next step in the invasion of China, and the Chinese rushed to defend it. The Chinese nationalist government had received word that some allied forces in the League of Nations were taking an interest in the war, and were looking to side with China as Imperial Japan was committing a flagrant act of aggression, providing much-needed aid to the Chinese. In order for their aid to be seen as useful and not a waste of resources, they needed to see that China wasn't going to roll over and die in the face of the Japanese advance, and as such, China needed to prove that they were willing to face down the invaders and meet them head-on. The Battle of Shanghai had proved this, and the Chinese were eager to continue proving their valor. In this, they dispatched 100,000 troops to Nanking, believing it would be enough to fight the Japanese off after their costly victory at Shanghai. Unbeknownst to them, now that the war was out in the open, the Japanese were not trying to sneak their troops into Manchuria anymore, and division after division was landing on the mainland to bolster their invasion force. By the time they reached the outskirts of Nanking, the the attacking force had swelled to around 160,000 soldiers, nearing twice the number of defenders in the city, but the Battle of Shanghai had bogged them down, giving the Chinese time to prepare for the attack on Nanking. Chinese troops had fortified the centuries-old walls and gates of the city, and established three defensive perimeters surrounding the outer walls, complete with trenches, barbed wire, moats, machine guns, minefields, and pillboxes. In addition, the Chinese had burned most residential buildings outside the city walls, preventing the Japanese any additional cover during their attack by adopting a scorched earth policy. (laughs) A scorched earth policy is a military strategy that aims to destroy anything that might be useful to the enemy. Any assets that could be used by the enemy may be targeted, which usually includes obvious weapons, transport vehicles, communication sites, and industrial resources. Such tactics have been used by the Russians when the Nazis invaded in the 1940s the Portuguese when Napoleon attacked in 1807 The Wallachians led by Vlad Dracula when the Ottomans attacked in 1462 Check out my Dracula episode if you want to hear about that Even as far back as the Romans when the Gallic tribes torched their own villages and forests So that the Romans could not house their soldiers as they advanced on December 2nd 1937 Japanese troops encountered the first line of defense at Nanking, and it was quickly overwhelmed by their superior firepower, complete with tanks and air superiority. But as their advance continued, the lines of defense became more stiff and formidable as Chinese forces retreated and reinforced. Three days after the initial skirmishes... Full-scale combat had broken out between Chinese and Japanese troops, and it took the Japanese a further 72 hours of constant fighting to finally break through the strong second line of resistance, leaving only the third, and most daunting, line of defense, the walls of Nanking. The Japanese army issued a summons to surrender, promising the Chinese troops in Nanking safe passage out of the city if they were to forfeit it. But the Chinese refused, and on December 10th, The final assault on the city commenced. Two days of brutal fighting commenced as the Japanese encountered ferocious resistance by the Chinese soldiers. It is reported that as tanks rolled into the city, Chinese troops wielding hammers jumped atop them and used hammers to disable them, and Chinese defenders chained themselves into pillboxes to keep from retreating to the last. Despite their heroic efforts and heavy casualties inflicted on the attackers, They were no match for the well-trained Japanese Imperial Army, and by the 12th of December, the Nanking garrison was disintegrating, and the walls were being ravaged by artillery fire. Civilians who had not yet left the city were fleeing into the nearby Yangtze River, attempting to swim across to safety, only to find that Japanese soldiers had already reached the other side, and were firing upon anyone they suspected of being Chinese. As the order came down for the remaining Chinese troops to evacuate the city, the Japanese navy began to blockade the river, and few Chinese troops and civilians were able to escape the fall of Nanking. By the early morning of December 13th, 11 days after the Japanese soldiers encountered the first line of defense, the city had fallen to the Japanese, and most remaining Chinese troops either surrendered or donned civilian clothes in an attempt to blend in with the civilian population of the city. Several squads of soldiers persisted in their fight for a few more days, but it was a fruitless endeavor. During the initial advance into the city, the Japanese army was focused solely on taking the territory, but as victory emerged on December 13th, the Japanese army descended into anarchy, looting, raping, and pillaging the city in a six-week marathon of atrocities that would come to be remembered as the Nanking Massacre. As I did when I covered the Rwandan genocide, I will spare you the grisliest details of of the events that transpired for the next six weeks in the Chinese city of Nanking, sufficing it to say that though the events are referred to as a massacre, this was closer to genocide. Conservative estimates gauge that 40,000 Chinese civilians perished in these six weeks, while some estimates range as high as 300,000 dead. That is more than the entire Franco-Prussian War. But the difference is that very few of these civilians had the capacity to fight back. How could the Japanese government allow this to happen? Well, the main problem stems from the fact that Japanese commanders acted on their own accord. As the Japanese advanced further into China, their advance was too quick for the Japanese government to continuously approve their attacks as they came and keep the same momentum the Japanese army was maintaining. So as the Japanese got closer to Nanking, the commanders decided to act without the approval of the Japanese government, and that led to the breakdown in command resulting in the massacre at Nanking. The troops knew that they weren't under the thumb of the government anymore, and their commanders were virtually powerless to stop the killing. Much of the atrocity had already transpired by the time word reached the Japanese government that it was happening, and by then there was really very little they could do except deny that it ever happened, which some Japanese government officials have continued to do as recently as 2015. Despite the efforts of the Japanese, news of the event, documented by foreigners living in Nanking during the massacre, sparked outcry as far away as the United States. The Soviet Union, sympathetic to communists living in China and apprehensive of the capitalist and imperialist ideals of the Japanese, were gearing up for a potential showdown should the Japanese go too far, and Nanking inched them closer to that line. The Japanese responded by slowing their advance for a time, giving the Chinese a chance to regroup, and it wasn't until the March of 1938 that the Japanese launched another attack, and by then, the Chinese were prepared to fight back. These three months, only three months of oxygen, were crucial to the Chinese defense effort. Because in those three months, elements of Chinese troops from all over the country, from numerous different factions, had finally united against a common enemy. Communists, nationalists, rogues, warlords, anarchists, everybody alike had joined forces in a union known as the Great Northwestern Army, which bunkered down at a town called Taizhuang. When they reached this town, the Japanese encountered fierce Chinese resistance. And though the Japanese held superior firepower, the Northwestern Army held firm. After two weeks of fierce fighting, the Chinese beat back the Japanese attackers, resulting in the first major defeat. For Japanese forces in their campaign, and a huge victory for the morale of the Chinese army, also becoming a symbol of Chinese unity throughout the war, as the various factions had put their differences aside to fend off the imperialists. Japanese fears about a united China had been realized. In retaliation for the defeat, the Japanese launched a renewed assault, bringing all of their armies in China to a central location, intending to attack the city of Wuhan with a virtually unstoppable force. With the Japanese gathering, the Chinese fortified the city, and one of the bloodiest battles of the war began when the Japanese attacked. For four months, the Chinese held the line, but in October of 1938, that line broke. And the city fell to the Japanese, but only after they'd suffered an extraordinarily high casualty rate. The battered Chinese army fled the city into the nearby mountains, where the rest of the army had been hard at work fortifying the mountain passes. See, the Chinese knew that Wuhan was a lost cause. There was no way they could hold back the Japanese forever. So instead of trying to fight the Japanese off, The garrison at Wuhan had waged a defensive warfare, and it was intended instead to to keep the Japanese at bay for as long as possible and inflict as many casualties as they could, so that when the Japanese started into the mountains in central China, the Chinese army would have turned it into one massive citadel. That plan paid off. And as the last Chinese troops left Wuhan, the ragged Chinese army was welcomed into heavily fortified mountains, daring the Japanese troops to come after them. Fortunately for the Japanese, they had some wise commanders and they decided not to chase after them. The fierce fighting surrounding the Battle of Wuhan paired with an environmental warfare act perpetrated by the Chinese as they broke the dikes holding back the foreboding Yellow River, which flooded much of eastern China caused a significant stagnation in the Japanese advance into their western neighbor. As 1938 turned to 1939, the two armies sat and waited, as Japanese air squadrons were reduced to bombing Chinese civilian targets in an effort to break the will of the Chinese people, as their armies did not have the manpower or the logistical fortitude to continue until reinforcements arrived. In terms of the ground war, things stayed quiet, several months as both sides weighed their options and eyed a series of events stirring up in europe japan had recently signed an agreement with italy and germany vowing to get involved were the two countries to be attacked by another power it seemed that japan had gotten in just in time because things were about to get very messy on the european continent That's going to do it for the episode today, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Tanner talks about stuff that happened. I'm Tanner. I've been talking about stuff that happened. We made it through most of the Sino-Japanese War, and you know what that means. You know what comes next. In the next episode, we are in the thick of it. World War II is heating up right now, and I can't tell you how excited I am to start covering it. Thank you for joining me this far, and I hope you continue to join me along the way. Again, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review so we can get more people involved with the conversations about history because, as I said before, it's more important than ever that we understand our history. Those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. Let's not do that. Also, if you want to contribute to the podcast financially, you are more than welcome to do that. The link to do that is on the podcast page, and that helps you set up a small monthly donation to the podcast to keep this party rolling. Thank you again for joining me, everybody. This has been Tanner, and I'm signing off until the next episode. World War II, it's coming. Catch you later.